kind of excited to announce that we're going to return to our teaching series in James called Born Again Behavior. And uh, we took a four-week break from it for Christmas and New Year's. And uh, on December 15th, we actually wrapped up chapter 1. This morning, we're going to begin to look at chapter 2. For some of you who weren't with us back uh, on December 15th or prior to that, because we do have a few uh, new people today, which I'm really excited about. Uh, And by way of reminding you, I need to give a little bit of context before we move forward. Um, James wrote this letter to Messianic Christians, that's Jews who became Christians, who were dispersed and living outside of Jerusalem. This congregation was, at this time, going through a very difficult trial. There were people on the outside of this congregation, the outside of this church, who were working against them tirelessly, Jewish and Gentile persecutors. And this was very common in the first century. And these people on the outside were trying to destroy the Christians' businesses, trying to destroy their careers and jobs. Uh, They were basically trying to ruin their livelihood. And there were people on the inside of this church actually working against each other as well. Uh, Wealthy Christians in this congregation were taking advantage of some of the poor Christians. And uh, the poor Christians wanted justice and revenge. In chapter 1, James issued several corrections to both groups. And we did six sermons in chapter 1, and we analyzed these corrections, and all of the audio recordings for these messages are available on our website if you missed any or would like to get caught up. And now we've come to chapter 2. By way of introduction, when we ponder or consider the attributes of God, undoubtedly Christians like to focus on the attribute of God's love. This is probably the one that we tend to focus on the most. Uh, We like to focus on His grace, which is an attribute. We like to focus on His omnipotence, His all-power. We like to focus on His omniscience, His all-knowledge for me. And then we like to focus on His omnipresence, which is Him being ever-present everywhere. Those are kind of the ones that we put the emphasis on and focus on. And maybe we focus on His holiness, but I don't really think that His holiness is an attribute. I think it's the essence of His being. It's more of a a high character trait or something like that. But there is an attribute that rarely, if ever, crosses our minds, and it would be God's impartiality. And when we speak of God's impartiality, we are referring to how He shows no favoritism toward men. It may come as a surprise to some of us, Uh, it did me in a sense, but God's impartiality is actually a reoccurring theme in Scripture. If you look for it, you'll find it all over the place, front to back, and in between. And we see it in the Old Testament in many places, I'm not going to cite all of them, but a good one would be Deuteronomy 10.17. It says, for the Lord your God is God of gods, lower G there, and Lord of lords the great, the mighty, and the awesome God who is not partial and who takes no bribe. He is not partial. There it is there. We see it in 2 Corinthians 19.7, which says, Now then, let the fear of the Lord be upon you. Be careful what you do, for there is no injustice with the Lord our God or partiality or 
taking bribes. And it's interesting that when the Bible speaks of his partiality, it also speaks of his pure honesty, not taking the bribes and what have you. Uh, one of the really great passages where we see it would be Job 34, 19. God, it just literally says, God shows no partiality to princes, nor regards the rich more than the poor, for they are all the work of his hands. We also see God's impartiality in the New Testament. Uh, we see it in Acts chapter 10, verses 34 and 35, which says, So Peter opened his mouth and said, Truly, I understand that God shows no partiality, but in every nation anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. Another place in the New Testament, Romans 2.11, and this is just as straightforward as you can get the Apostle Paul through the inspiration of the Spirit. Holy Spirit says, for God shows no partiality, just plain and simple. And then one other one here would be Colossians 3.25, which says, for the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. And there, obviously, God's partiality um, impartiality or ability to execute justice. It's all tied to the justice there. It's all tied to that. And that's usually the association with this uh, lack of partiality. So God is, he is impartial. He shows no partiality. He shows no favorites. He does not play favoritism at all. He doesn't pick one over the other. He doesn't, he doesn't support one gender over the other. There's two, by the way. He doesn't support one ethnicity over another. He, he has created all and he treats all in the same manner. He doesn't favor one over the other. This is a biblical fact, which literally destroys the idea of bigotry and racism, especially in the church. But human beings... And even Christians, unfortunately, are not naturally inclined to be impartial. Sadly, we tend to categorize people based on any number of measurements, um, based on their looks. You know, that's, he's in the handsome camp, and him not too much. You know, we say things like this in our minds, we... We put people in categories based on how they dress, based on their clothing, based on their wealth, based on their possessions, um, based on their ethnicity, based on their personality. Oh, he's one of those crazy ones. I've had that said to me, and I'm okay with that. Based on their intelligence, you know, based on primarily, I think, probably on their social status. Where are they at on the social ladder here. We tend to categorize people based on those things. Those are the qualifiers. And, and we determine where we want to place people based on those sort of measurements, those things. And yet, all of these things are non-issues with God. Uh, they have no significance or meaning to Him. Um, God has created all people, and one is not better than the other. Uh, these are the clear teachings of Scripture. Uh, the Scripture puts us all on level ground. We are, we are all sinners. That's the one thing that we all have in common. 
We've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We're all on level ground when it comes to that, certainly. But in God's mind, we're on level ground in other areas, in all areas. And God expects His people, believers, Christians, to be impartial as He is impartial. He expects us to show no favoritism by treating one kind or type better than the other. The opening line in James chapter 2 and many other passages in Scripture make this truth absolutely clear. In Colossians 3.11, the Apostle Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, penned this about the church. He said, here, he's talking about the church, there is no Gentile, that's a non-Jew, there is no Jew, there is no circumcised, there is no uncircumcised, Uh, there is no barbarian, Scythian, slave, or free, but Christ is all and all And he is in all, equally in all believers. So when we we think of the church, we don't want to think of different types and groups in the church because God doesn't see us that way. And I think this statement from Paul in Colossians, it it just puts all of us on level ground and it leaves no room at all whatsoever for partiality, no room for favoritism. And sadly, the messianic Christian community James wrote to had drifted away from this important biblical truth. And to combat and correct their unbiblical behavior, their partiality, James wrote chapter 2. The interesting thing about chapter 2 is uh, there's one general theme here, and it's partiality. It is the sin of partiality. Even when you get down to the part we all love, down at, you know, Chapter 2, verses 14, 15, 16, 17, where we start talking about how faith is alive and working. It's all done in the context of partiality. That is the driving theme of this chapter. And this chapter is basically divided into three sections. In section 1, which is verses 1 through 7, James identifies this congregation, this church's sin. And it is the sin of partiality, and he issues a couple of reminders to them. In section 2, which is verses 9 through 13, James exhorts them to fulfill the royal law, which has to do with loving our neighbors as we love ourselves. And he warns them about breaking God's laws and about judgment. And then finally in section 3, verses 14 through 26, James describes the nature of true faith, which is the kind of faith that always proves itself through action and works. Works like not showing partiality and caring for the poor. That's the context. We see that in verses 15 through 16 when you see someone, someone who isn't clothed and you say you have faith and you don't care for their needs. What kind of faith is that? And that was playing out in this church in a sense. This morning we're going to look at section 1, so please take your Bibles and turn to James 2. Our focus will be on verses 1 through 7. I have entitled this sermon just the plainest, most generic title ever, Do Not Show Partiality. Firstly to me I say that and then to you. Let's pray before we get to work. Father in heaven, we adore you, we love you, we have been praising and worshiping you, and now we aim to do that through the teaching of your word.
Give us attentive minds and ears to hear and hearts to receive your truth. Expose any area within us of partiality and call us to repentance this day. Be glorified in this message and in our note-taking, in our attention, and, and mostly in our obedience to your word. Be glorified now. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's pick it up where we left off on December 15th, a long time ago it seems. Verse 1, chapter 2, verse 1. Here's what James says to this church next. He says, My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. James begins by addressing his audience as my brothers. He considered this congregation to be his brothers in, if there were women there, and there were undoubtedly women there, because uh, the church would have never gotten anything done if there weren't any women there, and we know there were women there. Um, he addresses the whole congregation as my brothers, which is a blanket term to include brothers and sisters in the Lord. And that was his favorite title for believers. We've already learned this. He says this repeatedly in his letter. I'm thinking he might have been an early Baptist or maybe a descendant of Bruce or Brandon. <laughs> hey, brother. Bruce, by the way, said he would be here today. And I told him, you're not going to be here today because I remember the last time you had sh shoulder surgery. And uh, our brother is, is taking a break today. Make sure you guys pray for him. But he's at home, hey, brothering Ann, right now as I speak. <laughs> hey, sister, can I get some more pain meds? And the, the Greek word for brothers here is the same repeating word here in James's letter. It's Adelphos, and it really means, hey, believing brothers and sisters. It has to do with believing brothers and sisters. These are brothers and sisters who are fellow Christians, fellow believers. So when he says, my brothers, he's saying, my brothers and sisters in the Lord. And the fact that he's repeated it here, it, it just reaffirms the fact that James wrote his letter to believers, not to unbelievers. In fact, I've said this before, no book in the Bible was written to unbelievers because unbelievers cannot discern or understand the truth because they have not the Holy Spirit. What sense would it make for God to write a, a book or a love letter or instruction to people who cannot possibly comprehend? That's not to say that unbelievers cannot read the Word and God can act in power while they read it to regenerate and save them. He can do that. But it's written to believers we're the ones that can understand it. James is writing to believers, so when we see some of the crazy sins like partiality and other things in here, these things were happening in the church. These are brothers and sisters doing these things to each other. It's terrible. The phrase, show no partiality, is an imperative. What is an imperative? An imperative is a command. He's not suggesting that they show no partiality. He's not uh, trying to uh, kind of persuade them and, 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 and present it to them as a good idea. Hey, that's not fruitful in the church. Don't do that. He is commanding that they do not do it. This is something that we cannot do. He is saying, do not do it. Show no partiality. It's a command. It's an imperative. He is commanding these brothers and sisters, these fellow Christians, to show no partiality. He may have had Job 34 uh, verse 9 in mind here, since it deals with partiality among rich and poor. And verses 2 through 4 seem to indicate this. 
So he might have had that Old Testament passage in mind because James was very much an Old Testament kind of guy. The phrase, as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, reveals the sheer incompatibility of faith in the Lord Jesus and partiality. Faith, having faith in Christ and having partiality or showing partiality are literally like oil and water. And if you've ever dabbled with oil and water, you know they don't work together. One repels the other. They cannot come together. They cannot combine. And before the foundation of the world, Ephesians 1.4, God chose people from every tribe and tongue, Revelation 7.19, and every background, every ethnicity, every background, every, every language, everything. He, he included people from every backdrop and background, 1 Timothy 2.3. What? For salvation. So before the foundations of the world were laid, God, God chose a people for himself and primarily for his son as a gift. And that body of people is massive, according to Revelation 7, 9, innumerable. And you can even see the covenant promise given to Abraham, your descendants, speaking of believers, will be as numerous as the stars in the sky, the sand on the beach. This is a, a big church, and it's a diverse church. People from every tribe and tongue, every walk of life, every generation, every background. I would say from... Kings to custodians, from princes to peasants, from presidents to paupers, God has chosen. The church is there for a multi-ethnic, of course, in the church we don't think of ethnicities, but it is comprised of people from every ethnic. It's multi-generational and it's a multi-socioeconomic, people from every kind of financial background, rich, poor, in between. It's an organism comprised of all of them. When those who hold faith in the Lord Jesus treat one kind or type better than the other, they actually contradict what the church is. They mar the physical identity of the church. The physical identity of the church is the people of the church. And when they favor one over the other, they mar that identity because the church is comprised of many different ethnicities and backgrounds. And of course, as James is telling us here, when we show partiality, we commit the sin of partiality. It's an actual sin. It is a sin. Notice the phrase at the end of verse 1, the Lord of glory. I love that phrase. It's kind of a terrifying phrase when you think of Christ and his glory. Uh, this title here is tied to Exodus chapter 40, verse 34, and undoubtedly 1 Kings chapter 8, verse 11, which speak of the Shekinah, the glory in which, or the cloud in which God manifested his presence and glory during the Israelites' exodus out of Egypt, you may recall. He led them by pillar of fire at night and pillar of cloud in the day. That is the Shekinah, that cloud. James employs this title here to remind his messianic or Jewish Christian audience that the Lord Jesus Christ is the very presence and glory of God in the church. That's what he's saying. He's saying you're doing this in front of God is what he's saying. 
And Jesus Christ is not only the, the presence and glory of God in the church, he is the perfect prime example of impartiality to us. How? As indicated by his humble birth. He, he wasn't born unto royalty. He was born into poverty. He was born into a, an impoverished family. He was brought up in the keys of ancient Israel, Nazareth. Hey, I live in keys. It's not that bad. Uh, yeah, it is. No, it's not. Modesto's a cesspool now. It's indicated by his humble birth, where his upbringing took place in, in a dumpy place, Nazareth. Nazareth. It's indicated by his willingness, even his willingness, he shows impartiality, his willingness to minister in regions which were held in utter contempt by the religious leaders. The religious leaders of Jesus' day hated Galilee. It was like the Central Valley, how Bay Area people tend to feel about us. Galilee was the farming region, and the religious leaders hated it. And worse than that, they hated Samaria. And Jesus ministered in Samaria. So Jesus sets the prime example of impartiality to us just through his birth and his life and his ministry and where he did ministry and ultimately who he died for, every tribe and tongue, right? James's point here is fairly simple. If our Lord Jesus Christ, the ever-presence of God and glory of God, the Lord of glory, if He was and is impartial, how can those who hold faith in Him be the opposite of Him? This is James's point here. How can they, how can we be partial? It's just simple logic, friends. Those who hold faith in the Lord Jesus Christ must be like the Lord Jesus Christ. <laughs> it's logic. And since he is impartial, they, we, must be impartial. In the next three lines, James identifies this specific type of partiality this congregation was exhibiting because there are different forms of it. Now we can look at verses 2 through 4. Please look there with me. James continues by saying, For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, You sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, You sit over there or sit down at my feet, and he says this question, he asks this question, Have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Ooh. And so when wealthy people dressed in fine clothing and nice jewelry visited the church's Sunday worship gatherings, the congregation gave them preferential treatment by giving them the best seats in the house. This is what they did. And yet, when poor people entered, people dressed in shabby clothing and they didn't have the fine clothing, they didn't have the jewelry, what did the congregation do? The congregation made them stand in the back of the room or sit on the floor at their feet. This congregation showed partiality by treating the rich better than the poor. 
This is what they were doing. It's so straightforward, is it not? Just look at how James just puts it right there. This is what you're doing. And James tells them poignantly that in making these distinctions between rich and poor, they have become judges with evil thoughts. And I'm thinking he had Leviticus 19 verse 15 in mind here. It says, You shall do no injustice in court. You shall not be partial to the poor or defer to the great. But in righteousness you shall judge your neighbor. In righteousness. Now, there's a difference here in, in the scenario, in the context. We're, we're not dealing with a court setting here in James, I don't think. We're dealing with worship gatherings. Uh, so the Leviticus passage doesn't line up perfectly with our James text. But the principal truth in Leviticus 19.15 totally applies. It applies to every potential scenario. Judging people based on their appearance, based on their social status, is a form of injustice. That is an act of injustice. If we Christians are to judge, and some of you would say, we're not to judge at all, hold your horses. If we are to judge, we are to do so in righteousness. Guess what? That has... Judging in righteousness has nothing to do with appearance or social status. Nada. And this is precisely what the Lord Jesus commanded in John 7, 24. He himself said, Do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. Straight from the lips of the Lord. What does it mean to judge in righteousness, or as Jesus put it, with right judgment. Because isn't this a popular thing that's thrown around today? You're judging me, don't judge me. I mean, how many of you have actually had that thrown in your face when you made a recommendation or said something in love? You have, that's the automatic response by people today, is it not? It is. You're judging me. Well, what does it have to do with here? It has to do with Christians judging other Christians who persist in sin. In fact, I think that's the only kind of judgment we are to make. I mean, I get it. In our evangelism, we have to assess who we're dealing with, and we make judgments and then figure out how to properly minister to people. That's a kind of judgment we make, but that's different than here. And what we're looking at here... Christians are to judge other Christians who persist in sin. When we see our brothers and sisters in the Lord living in sin, we are to judge them according to righteousness. 1 Corinthians 5, uh, verse 12b. And we are to what? Pursue the steps of church discipline in Matthew 18. Verses 15 through 17. Why? In an effort to lead them to repentance and restoration. In fact, the, the goal of all of our discipline, whether it be between us parents and our children or other Christians or anything, the goal of our disciplinary action is always restoration. It's not to punish. It is to try to work to reconcile people unto God and unto the church and brothers and sisters. 
And it may come as a surprise to you, but every Christian is authorized and commanded to judge in righteousness. This is how we maintain purity and holiness in the church. If we do not judge our brothers and sisters in righteousness, what happens? Sin spreads in churches and sin kills churches. So what? Churches that let sin go will eventually die and wind up like the church at Laodicea. A church that let sin persist and grow and eventually that church died and there was a bunch of people meeting on Sundays but none of them were Christians. It is imperative that we understand this. When we, when we render a judgment, the instruction we give is done in truth and love. To, to do this in any other manner is unpleasing to the Lord and sinful. And so there is a kind of judgment we must practice, but it's a loving judgment. It is a judgment that is seeking the restoration of people and individuals. And the kind of judgments that we make outdoors don't have to do with judging unbelievers. We're not supposed to judge unbelievers. But we have to get to know them and we make judgments in our minds as to how to best minister to them. Amen? That's the only kind of judgment we should do with unbelievers. But that's not typically the way we judge unbelievers or the other political party or anyone else, right? We render, like, they should go to hell judgments. And God is the only judge who has the authority or right to make those judgments, not us, not us. We're not the judge, jury, and executioner. It's important that we understand this. We must judge one another in accordance with righteousness. If, if, if you find me to be in sin, if you don't make those judgments and come to me in love and correct me, you're not doing me any favors. You are jeopardizing a whole lot by not stepping up in and approaching your pastor. Just be gentle. <laughs> that was my flesh. But this is, this is yeah, exactly. This is that's how I feel. If you don't do that for one another, you're, you're not helping people. Even if people throw that in your face, you're judging me. Well, I have to judge according to righteousness. I care about you. I love you enough to say something. And we, we all, at times, get entangled in some kind of sin. Small sins, sometimes big sins. But we have to do this. This is, this is part of what we are to do. The judgment practiced by James's audience was injustice because they were not judging by righteousness. They weren't doing what the Scripture commands us to do. They were judging by what? Appearance. They were judging by appearance. This kind of false judgment is driven by, as James says, evil thoughts, or I think the NASB renders it better, evil motives, which can be synonymous, synonymous but evil motives, that captures the meaning, I think, better. What type of evil motives were lurking behind this congregation's partiality. It's good treatment of the, of the wealthy and poor treatment of the poor. What was driving it? What, what, were, what was the MO here? Well, we don't know. <laughs> the text doesn't say. But I'll give you two potential evil motives because I think that these two are behind just about all of the stuff that we do when it comes to this. 
it's conjecture, but I think that it's safe to say that it was potentially these. Firstly, personal gain. Personal gain might have been driving this treatment of the wealthy, uh, this good treatment of the wealthy. People who don't have much, and this church was primarily poor, by the way, so this is extraordinary that even poor people would treat their other poor brothers and sisters really terribly to treat the wealthy well. It doesn't make any sense. It perplexed James. But in any case, have you ever noticed how people who don't have much start acting really weird around people who do have a whole lot? Preferential treatment? Smooching the old feet? Right? Well, hey, Bob! Sometimes when... uh, I don't know if we do this or not, but there is the potential there that if we were to be around extremely wealthy people or people that just have more means than us, there is a temptation there to be extra nice to them. Why? So we can get something from them. Personal gain can drive partiality. Well, we treat the rich well because they have the potential to lift us out of our poverty or whatever. And so we're going to treat them with special favor. I think personal gain was driving this. But there's a second one, and I call it church gain. And I I don't have any doubts about this one being in there. Adding rich people to this congregation could result in increased giving, bigger budgets, bigger buildings, bigger ministries, and a bigger, more glamorous reputation in that community. This is not a temptation for me. I'm not being uh, dishonest here when I say this. It is not a temptation for me. And first of all, I wouldn't even know if somebody who comes in is wealthy or not. I guess they'd have to be wearing a mink. (laughs) And that would just be weird. I'd be like, those poor minks, leave. But... I'm not compelled to do this one here. I, I don't, when I get around people who have means, I'm not, it's, that temptation isn't there for me. And maybe it's not there for you, or maybe it is. But I'm not one of these pastors who's tempted to, to you know, play favorites with, with potentially wealthy people to, to, so that that can be an advantage to this church. And I'm not tooting my own horn. I'm just saying it's not something that I wrestle with. But I'll tell you this. It is something that many pastors have given into. The minute they find out that people that have serious means have come into the gathering, they're there in their grill after the service or whatever and smoozing and, hey, do you want to get lunch? And this happens all the time. Why? Because they're thinking of how the wallets and the bank accounts of these people could benefit their church. It's a real issue today. It always has been. That is a temptation for many pastors, and quite frankly, with some pastors, it's not even a temptation. It's just how they operate. You know, when, when you have um, a good example of this would be uh, when you have small groups at your church. We've done those in the past. It didn't work out too good, but we've tried them. And maybe the pastor has a small group and the worship leader has a small group and then one of the elders has a small group and then maybe one person in the congregation who's very capable of handling the word, they have a small group. You just look at who's in whose small groups. And if all the wealthiest people in the church are in the pastor's small group, partiality! And this happens. I've seen it. 
One person I know that was in the pastor's small group was basically uh, financial equivalent to me, you know, kind of broke. And he called that small group high church. That's disgusting. Spurgeon nailed it. Years ago, he said, to see ministers of different sects fluttering around a wealthy man like vultures around a dead camel is sickening. And that happens. I think that was happening here in this congregation, in this church here that James wrote to. Now, it would seem that the majority of us here at RHC do not exhibit this particular type of partiality, at least not while we're gathered for worship. I haven't seen it. I've seen you guys welcome every type of person, especially homeless, when they kind of barge through the front door. What's going on in here, you know? And that's always awkward. Remember the time that one guy came through the door and said, My son died, I need prayer. Right while I was preaching, I was like, We'll pray for you after the service. Take a seat. (laughs) But I haven't seen anyone here mistreat people who have come in. I've seen you guys love on people who have come in that aren't the same as us. We had that one gal in a wheelchair who would always pass out in the middle of the room. Remember that? And, and uh, that was never a good sign when young families would come. It's like, look, somebody just OD'd on heroin. That's what it looked like. But that person was loved and cared for at a level that made me uncomfortable because I didn't want people to be scared away as they came in and thought somebody had just died on our floor. That's what it looked like. But I saw that person loved and cared for over and over, especially by the Filburns. You guys are, are amazing at this. When people come in, I, I don't see that partiality. I don't see you favoring those who are dressed better than others. I haven't seen it. But there are other types of partiality we need to be mindful of. Christians tend to be very, very clicky. Now you're going, uh-oh. I was just getting ready to welcome a homeless guy in, but now he's going to nail me in another area. We like to run with people who are like us, and we are hesitant and and sometimes just unwilling to welcome others who are different or unfamiliar. Amen? I got to admit, I tend to gravitate toward guys who like what I like, you know, Reformed theology, um, guns, craft beer. Reformed smoked coffee. I don't know. What was that stuff you gave me, Dave? I mean, do we all do that? You know, some of you guys are like, that's right, man. The 49er guys, those are my bros. Not too much with the Titans. We, we do tend to gravitate toward people who are like us, who, who like what we like. And sadly, I also tend to gravitate toward people who aren't very difficult or cause me a whole lot of trouble. And you're thinking, well, that's just being a bad pastor. Well, when's the last time you went <laughs> recklessly pursued someone who causes you great trouble? <laughs> right? If we're all going to be honest, we all tend to avoid people who cause us trouble, right? Yeah, we do. And you know what I've been learning lately? I've been learning lately that God places difficult people in our lives for our testing, for our sanctification, for our growth, for their benefit, for their blessing. So we've got to be real careful not to avoid people who are difficult. They're there for a reason. Not just so I can sink my foot in the rear. <laughs> I, just, I would just say this. Don't, don't, 
Don't be partial and, and try to drive, because that's like people's New Year's resolution. I'm getting rid of all the toxic people in my life. If I said that, I wouldn't be at a church. Because the church is full of toxic people, especially the guy up front spitting on everyone. That's a New Year's resolution. I'm getting rid of all the toxic people in my life. If we did that, good Lord, what mission field would we have? I just say that don't drive them from your life, but you've got to take a break from them once in a while. Amen? Sometimes you've got to do that. But I'll tell you this, and what we're talking about here is we're talking about preferences, really. And having preferences is normal. We all have them. But here's the deal. If our preferences lead us to negatively view and exclude others from our lives and ministries, we have moved from preference to partiality. There's where the danger lies. It's easy to move from preference to partiality. And what is partiality? It's not sinful to have preferences. It's sinful to show partiality. So we got to be very, very careful. Very careful here. And, and this church, this congregation James is writing to, they didn't get this. In the next two lines, James reminds his audience of a simple truth. Look at verses 5 and 6a with me. He says, listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. That's a rebuke, by the way. Wow. The simple truth James reminded them of here is that God has a heart for the poor. That God has chosen to, to include poor people in his plan of redemption. Now this truth is, is seen throughout Scripture. But we got to be honest here, it wasn't widely accepted in ancient times. According to Jewish theology or Jewish belief back then, and probably today and to some degree, poverty was seen as a curse and sign of God's displeasure. So if you were poor back in the first century, in, in James' day, in Jesus' day, uh, you were basically thought of by religious leaders as being cursed by God. God is displeased with you. He has judged you and he has made you poor. That's the way they thought. And yet wealth was seen as a sign of God's favor, blessing, and even salvation. If you had a lot of stuff, there was no doubt in the Jewish mind then that God had saved you. You know whose friends believed this false truth without a doubt is Job's friends. If you've ever read the book of Job, they just went after that poor guy. And they thought that he had just sinned so grievously against God, and that's why he was stripped of, of family and all his wealth. And you've just sinned greatly against God, and God has stripped you of it all. And that was not the case. Job's friends believed that false theology. And guess what? People today still believe it. Those who think this way must have missed all of the, passage, the passages and scriptures that reveal otherwise. In Leviticus chapter 1, verses 1 through 17, we see that God made a special provision for the poor in the sacrificial system. 
Since the poor could not afford a bull, goat, or sheep, they could offer a much more affordable animal like a turtle dove or a pigeon. You see, within the sacrificial system, it actually cost you something to make sacrifices to God that reflected His forgiveness in your life. And if you couldn't afford certain animals, the prescribed animals, which was a bull or goat or sheep, then God said, I know there's poor people that can't afford that. They can offer a turtle dove, which is a lot cheaper. God made a way for them to offer sacrifices reflecting their forgiveness. In fact, Jesus' parents, his parents, Joseph and Mary, they did this because they were poor. They brought birds, Luke 2, 24. Listen to what these Psalms and Proverbs say about the poor. This will give you kind of a sense of God's heart. Uh, Psalm 113, verses 5 through 8. Who is like the Lord our God, who is seated on high, who looks uh, far, down on, uh, far down on the heavens and the earth? He raises the poor from the dust and lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes and with princes of his people. Wow. Psalm, verse, or Psalm chapter 9, verse 18, For the needy shall not always be forgotten, and the hope of the poor shall not perish forever. Proverbs 19, verse 17, Whoever is generous to the poor lends to the Lord, and he will repay him for his deed. That is amazing to think that when we care for poor people, it's like giving to God. Proverbs 22, verses 22 through 23 this is a warning. God said, do not rob the poor because he is poor or crush the afflicted at the gate for the Lord will plead their cause and rob of life those who rob them. Whoa. In Isaiah chapter 3, verses 14 through 15, God threatened elders and princes with devastating judgment for what? Devouring, plundering, and grinding the face of God's people, whom in that text God calls the poor. And in the New Testament, you've got passages like 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 27 through 28, where we see God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are. Get the idea of low people shaming the wise and rich. And obviously in our text, right, chapter 2 of James, verses 5 through 6a, all of these passages reveal that God has a heart of compassion and love for impoverished people. And James flat out tells us that God even has a plan for many of them to be saved, that they are included, that they, uh, that they will become rich in faith, and that they are made heirs of the kingdom. That's an amazing thing. I'll tell you what. If you read through the entire Bible, you might be led to think that God is partial toward the poor. That he favors the poor over the rich. But this is untrue. Why? Because God is impartial. God is impartial. And yet, he has chosen to save poor people and make them rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom. This is the simple truth James's audience needed to remember because why? They were dishonoring the poor. Why? So they could accommodate the rich. In the last two lines, James issues a final reminder 
Look at verses 6b through 7 with me. This is amazing here. And this is just, <laughs> I, I, I weep at this, what he says here, and I laugh. Listen to what he says. Are not the rich the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? Question. This church was being oppressed by outside persecutors. Who were they? I already said they were wealthy Jews and wealthy Gentiles who basically hate Jesus and hate Christians. According to James, these two groups were oppressing the church in two ways that he identifies here through, number one, lawsuits, and number two, blasphemy. Blasphemy is blasphemeo in Greek, and it basically means slander. What is slander? Slander has to do with speaking falsely about someone in an effort to destroy, damage their reputation. These Wealthy outsiders were filing frivolous lawsuits. And if you thought today it was bad, it was even bad in the first century. They were filing frivolous lawsuits against members of this church and what? Dragging them into court. Why? To try to strip them of whatever money and possessions they had left. That's what wealthy people were doing. That's what the rich were doing to this church, to members of this church. And not only that, while they were suing and dragging them into court, they were simultaneously slandering them throughout the community in an effort to destroy their reputations and damage the honorable name by which they were called, which is what? The name of Jesus. This is what was happening in the background. And and this is just one of the things that, that James could not get his mind around. It is those people who are trying to destroy you. Why are you favoring them? Isn't that perplexing? I mean, that defies logic. Why would they favor the rich who were treating them so, so terribly? It makes no sense. And I'll tell you what it wasn't. It was not a case of love thy enemy. This had nothing to do with loving their enemies, which we're commanded to do. Welcoming this group into the church could have been a form of that, but not at the expense of the poor. You can't honor one commandment and violate another one. You've torn down the whole law, is what James says in the next text, if you do that. This was not a case of loving their enemies. James knew it. Something else was driving it. If they had followed that law of loving their enemies, they would have also followed the one that says, love your neighbor as yourself. They would have treated the poor with equality. What, again, what was driving this? Because this is, this is perplexing to me. It's perplexing to James. James is like, aren't those the people who are trying to destroy you and you're showing them favor, giving them the best seats? What's going on with you people? You taking crazy pills? What was it driving this? Why would they do this? It makes no sense. And it wasn't about loving the neighbor or loving their enemies. It could be that the victims of these lawsuits and slander 
recognized some of these wealthy visitors as their oppressors and sought to show them favor to try to win their approval and potentially bring that oppression to an end. What do we call that? Personal gain. Personal gain at the expense of their brothers and sisters or that were in the church or just poor people who were visiting the church, as James tells us. I think what they were doing is they were sacrificing on the altar of, of um, oh, what would be a good phrase for it? Uh, they were sustaining themselves or trying to benefit themselves. Um, they were sacrificing the poor on that altar of self-preservation to try to get something from these wealthy people. Imagine with me that you know they're at the the door of the church, you know, you've got people there greeting and people are coming into the gathering place to worship, right? Because James identified it as an assembly. It's an assembly. This is an assembly. So, so you've, got, you've got ushers in the church there that are welcoming people in and, 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 and wealthy people, maybe that they recognized, are walking up and they say, hey, Bill, that's the guy who's suing me. I just saw him in court last week. Let's, let's treat him really, really well. And maybe... They'll see that we're not so bad, and maybe they'll drop the lawsuit. Maybe the oppression will end. This could have been what was happening. And at the same time, they're saying, hey, hey, you, 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 you come over here. You, by the way, you in the shabby clothing with no jewelry. You get up so Mr. Buchanan, trying to think of a wealthy person's name, you get up so that he can sit here, and you you sit either at my feet or you sit in the back. This is exactly what they were doing. Like I said earlier, we don't know what was driving the partiality at this church. It could have been personal gain. It could have been church gain. It could have been something else. We don't know. We don't know what was driving it. But either way, it was there, and James addressed it head on, didn't he? He used logic with them. Why would you go out of your way to treat one group terribly, who's like you, and the other group terrifically, and that's the group that's suing you? James went right after him. And I would say to us, just as, a, as an exhortation to us, partiality is a sin that must be taken seriously. I mean, we are to take all sin seriously. The partiality is just right there. What does it do? It, it strips people of the inherent dignity they have as image bearers. To treat one greater than another is to insult the Creator who created them all. And the sin of partiality is, is damaging and divisive in the church. I get it. We have our preferences, and there's an awful temptation there to let those become partiality, but we got to guard against this. We got to guard against this. It's divisive in the church, it's damaging to the church. And you know what? Flat out, partiality, it just angers the Lord. It angers the Lord and maker of all, rich and poor, right? Proverbs 22, verse 2. It says, God has made rich, he's made poor, he's made them all. And when we show partiality, it is offensive to the Lord who made all. That's just the, that's just the truth. 
We got to be very careful with this thing here. We got to we got to deal with it as sin. We got to thrust it from our lives. If our preferences have become partiality and we're not welcoming or accepting of others, we, we've got to deal with that. Brothers and sisters, we are commanded to show no partiality as we hold faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. That command that he gave that group nearly 2,000 years ago, that's our command. It's not just for them, it's for us. The Lord Jesus Christ is the very presence and glory of God in the church, and he is the perfect prime example of impartiality. We must keep our eyes on the Lord Jesus and do our best in the power and strength of the Holy Spirit to follow his example. I'm talking about in our lives. I'm talking about in our ministries. I know how it is in ministry. It's easy just to stick to your little group while there's a whole bunch of people that want to serve and aren't being given opportunity because it makes us uncomfortable. It can be our fault because we are unwilling to accept and train and multiply. You know what we're called to do. We all do, right? We do. We all know what we're called to do. What are we called to do? Make disciples. We are all about multiplication. And that includes equipping people to serve with us side by side. Even if it's difficult and it's uncomfortable. God does not want us to show partiality in any area of our lives. And don't leave this place today and go and open up your front door and say, everyone come live with me. That would be unwise. We have to be discerning, but we need to have hearts for people and love for people and a desire to include and work with them, to accept them as they come in as best we can. If somebody comes in here wanting to cause trouble, we don't, we'll deal with that. That's different. I think you guys have set a really good example by how you've been throughout the years with people who have come in. You've been loving and welcoming. Let's just make sure we're doing that across the board in our lives. Amen? Not just here. And sometimes we put on a show when we're at church. But what we're doing out there is much different from what we do here in front of the pastor or others, our peers. Let's be impartial toward everyone all the time as best we can, but also discerning with a general goal of reaching people with the gospel and multiplying disciples. Amen? Let's do that.